0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Inflation has started to subside, but remains worryingly high across the world. Will central banks need to raise rates higher still? Will inflation fall back to its 2% target without a recession? And will the Bank of England ever stop saying mad stuff? And in today's
1: dumb question of the week, will high prices be with us forever? When inflation falls, prices don't fall, do they? Okay, let's get into it. We're about 18 months on from when inflation really started to pick up, and it's still high across the world, but especially in the UK where the latest CPI number is 10.1%, so still in double figures, which compares with the US at 5% and the Eurozone average of just under 7%. So, Romin, why does the UK still have markedly higher inflation than its peer countries?
0: I think it's a number of things which cause it to be so high in the UK. And if you break down the 12-month CPI inflation rate, and this is for March, energy is still a big contributor, and that's indirectly. So they have a category for housing and household services. Of the 10% inflation that we've got now, roughly, about 3.5% of that is from very high household energy prices. So I think that's still a big contributor for the UK. And that's largely due to our energy supply and the way we've chosen to price energy, which is quite idiosyncratic, to put it politely. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, we have this energy price guarantee. You know, the way it prices things via the wholesale market can keep prices high for longer, even though the original goal was to keep prices reasonable for consumers.
1: Are you telling me when a government steps in on market pricing, it can go a bit wonky?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, not just that, but just the way we kind of consume energy, but also how energy is supplied for the UK. I think that's been an issue as well. But there are, you know, really good positive things that may come out of this, which is people realise that energy self-sufficiency is really important. I think the UK, if it does shift more towards things like wind power and tidal power to a much lesser extent... You know, suddenly we wouldn't be reliant on things like energy prices, which can spike incredibly quickly and which are dependent on things like geopolitical instability in the Middle East or hostile governments, say in Russia.
1: But it's not just the UK that's experiencing high wholesale gas prices, right, in Europe. The whole of Europe is experiencing that. So why are we getting it worse than other places?
0: Well, certainly in Europe, what's been happening is they've been filling up their reserves very quickly because there was fortunately a mild winter. So they have very big storage capabilities in Europe, which we don't have. That was a decision by the UK government not to have that. Of course, it's expensive to build those reserves. But while you are dependent on things like natural gas, I think it kind of makes sense to have that buffer. And the US, for example, has its Strategic Petroleum Reserve... No, Roman. Well, the sun is shining.
1: Why do we even need a roof? <laughs> <laughs> Just let it fall in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it is like the story from the Old Testament. You know, when you have one of these lean years, it's really good if you have stores set aside. And the other component that's a big driver of inflation
1: in the UK at the moment is food prices, which rose almost 20% year on year. And they're rising at the highest rate for over 45 years.
0: I was horrified to see that cheese sandwiches had gone up hugely. Yeah, I keep tracking the breakfast index, which <laughs> Bloomberg has, which like, is ridiculous. The cost of an English breakfast has gone up massively. But wait, is this kind of Bloomberg breakfast, which I actually loved? They had a brilliant breakfast bar. If you went over to have an interview at Bloomberg, they had the most amazing food. But it was all kind of muesli and fruit. That doesn't sound that amazing. It was just like the most perfect muesli you can imagine. It was very good. It was very good quality. But of course, it was free, which always makes things taste better. But
1: you were paying $20,000 for the Bloomberg Terminal.
0: (laughs) Well, my company was, yeah. But what's happened to the breakfast index? Has that gone up a lot?
1: Yeah, loads of the components in it have gone up a lot. Orange juice is up, I think, over 300% since 2019. Eggs have obviously gone up massively. Milk everything, basically. Food is just going up incredibly. And I think it's politically sensitive because when people think about inflation, they think about food, I think. It's the first thing they think about food and how much does it cost to fill up my car, right? Those are the two things everyone associates with inflation.
0: And it's something you see very frequently as well. You know, things which probably cost you more kind of come out of your account via direct debit. So it's not really something that you sense, whereas you fill up your car and you can actually see the amount on the pump. And I think the rise in food prices is mostly driven by supply issues
1: like across the continent. There's just bad harvests going on.
0: And I guess the way it's supplied in the UK. For example, when we had various things running out recently, you know, various types of vegetable, apparently that's the way that the supermarkets run. They have fixed contracts with certain suppliers. So, for example, if your supplier at a certain supermarket comes from Spain and there's some kind of harvest failure from that supplier, then you're not going to be able to go to alternatives. Whereas my local greengrocer had all of this stuff still in his shop, but he just said, it's going to cost more. I remember that a government minister,
1: I think it was Theresa Coffey, said, uh, let them eat turnips, basically, didn't she? <laughs> she said, if there's
0: choices of tomatoes, just buy turnips, great British vegetables. <laughs> Another great suggestion from, from our rulers, yeah. But certainly if you look at the components of inflation, you know, the three biggies at the moment. The first one, obviously, we discussed was household services and housing. That was because of energy. But then the other two really big ones are food and non-alcoholic beverages. So that's about 2%.
1: Is the solution just to start drinking much more alcoholic beverages?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then restaurants and hotels, you know, those are the three big contributions to inflation right now. That's true.
1: But then food and energy is all excluded from core CPI. But core CPI is still worryingly high as well. So that's at 6.2% in the UK, which is above 56 in the US and 57 in the Eurozone. So closer, it's a closer spread on the core CPI if you want to look at it that way.
0: And core CPI is much more driven by services and the cost of services. So what we're seeing in the UK certainly is people have still got a pretty tight labour market So that means that, you know, if you are negotiating a wage, you're in a pretty strong position in the UK right now. It depends on the sector, obviously. But if that's the case, then, you know, you can certainly keep sticky inflation because of this fact that people can negotiate higher wages and companies can keep their margins relatively high. And that is what
1: really annoyed Hugh Pill at the Bank of England. So he's the chief economist at the Bank of England. And then he somehow managed to give the brilliant quote that British people and businesses need to accept they are poorer and stop seeking pay rises. Which, you know, if you read the full comments he made in the podcast, it's not as stark and as blunt as that. But obviously it got stripped out of context and, you know, splashed across the front page of the Daily Mail. Bank of England says,
0: accept your poorer. It's funny because he calls such anger. But if you actually listen to the podcast, he actually makes some really good points. And I think he's great. You know, I think he's, he's really interesting, what he says about inflation and all the problems that led to the current spike. For example, he compares it to Lemony Snicket, a sequence of unfortunate events. He says, you know, who could have predicted the pandemic and then all of the stuff that followed.
1: Yeah, but doesn't there need to be a bit more kind of awareness about how the media
0: and the public work? But then he goes on to say about the sticky inflation with the wages and the high margins for companies. And he's right. You know, somehow this has got to break. The price-wage spiral in the UK is one that's much more likely to take off than it is elsewhere. You know, we have restricted our pool of labour because of Brexit. You know, we have cut off a large supply of labour from people in Europe that could just freely move to the UK to work. And as a consequence of that, you know, we've made our labour market that much tighter And that means that the wage negotiations can be much more aggressive, I guess.
1: Yeah, his quote where he describes the UK being poorer, he says, The UK, which is a big net importer of natural gas, is facing a situation that the price of what you're buying from the rest of the world has gone up relative to the price of what you're selling to the rest of the world, which is mainly services in the case of the UK. You don't need to be an economist to realise that if the cost of what you're buying has gone up compared to what you're selling, you're going to be worse off. And then, yeah, he makes the point that we're all going to have to eat a bit of the being poorer dynamic and sort of stop asking for such big pay rises. And I I saw on FinTwit, like on Twitter, the kind of consensus was yeah, you're not wrong. You're just an asshole. (laughs) 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 I mean, the thing Hugh Pill fears and all central bankers fear is a price-wage spiral, isn't it? And are we really in danger of that in the UK? So private sector pay has grown by 6.9% over the last year, which again is a long way above the US and the Eurozone. That's in nominal terms, obviously. In real terms, pay is falling. But nominal pay growth is really strong in the UK.
0: So let's say inflation fell to 2% tomorrow. Suddenly all these people who've been getting these pretty chunky wage growth increases are going to have to accept much lower wage growth. And I think that'll be very difficult. I think once you get into this psychology where you see your wage packet increasing by a certain amount every year, you don't think, oh, in real terms, this is falling. You think, well, I need this kind of wage growth just to maintain my standard of living. So you kind of have this situation where high inflation becomes normalised and you almost kind of assume it's still there. So I think there's a problem. There's no way we can get stable price growth of 2%. If we've got wage growth at 6%, it's going to have to come down.
1: Yeah, but ideally it comes down at the same time the inflation
0: falls. Well, that's what you'd hope. But the problem, I think, is that people are not going to accept that. It's chicken and egg, and egg prices are going through the roof. (laughs) (laughs) Again, at my greengrocer, when I go over there, he doesn't display his eggs. It's only for special customers. So he says, oh, yeah, I can sort you out. And he's got some under the counter. (laughs) Are you a special customer? I am. I go there every day. And they love Teddy, you know, Teddy gets a little tree. But look, I think another problem in the UK is that we had a very long period when we had negative wage growth in real terms. You know, we had a decade, a lost decade, essentially, when our wages didn't increase. Depends on the sector you work in. So teachers have got a particularly raw deal.
1: And people in the NHS,
0: actually. And nurses, yeah, they had a really rough time in terms of wage growth, And this was the decade after the financial crisis, wasn't it? Yeah, this was the decade of austerity, when really we could have afforded to spend more on things like nurses and education, but chose not to. So I think that makes it more difficult now to turn around and say, look, you've got to bite the bullet and just accept a lower standard of living, because that's what this means. You know, we always assume that things get better and that our generation will be more wealthy, more healthy than the ones that came before. But a lot of these trends have reversed. Life expectancy, but also living standards, and it's going to come with a real shock, I think, because if you've gone from very low interest rates, where you can borrow to increase the quality of your life, you, know, you can buy a big car, a big house, very cheaply, and you know low inflation of two percent, where you know your buying power doesn't erode much over time, and your wages are probably exceeding inflation in some cases, to a situation where suddenly You can't borrow to buy nice things and things are getting more expensive. That's going to come as a real shock.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. In a sense, we've mortgaged the future of the country to build up a housing bubble, maybe if you want to call it a bubble, and to promise a high level of pension to today's current retirees. The state pension relative to other benefits has gone up massively over the last 15 years because of the triple lock guarantee and also the historic defined benefit pensions are kind of not fully funded. So today's workers are, in effect, contributing to that. And interestingly, when you look at the amount of money companies are having to put into their defined benefit pensions to keep them afloat, that is shown in the economic data as a return to labour. So it looks as if it's going to the current (laughs) labour pool, but it's not. It's going to the
0: retirees. So your generation, Michael, do you feel this kind of anger about boomers and feeling that you're kind of worse off than the previous generation's? I'm in that
1: nice position as a millennial where I feel equal amounts of anger towards the boomers and the generation coming after me.
0: (laughs) So So you call them lazy and then you call the uh, older generation just lucky.
1: Yeah, entitled. Yeah, that's the way to play it, I think. Be in the middle. (laughs) I mean, the question now when it comes to UK inflation is, is it going to really start to come down? The Bank of England had predicted that by this point it would be well below 10%. but It's not. Now, a lot of people are saying that next month is actually when we're going to start to see the big declines in inflation come in because you've got these things called base effects where you're looking over a 12 month window and the big energy spike is going to drop out of that 12 month window. And we actually know what energy prices are going to be for the next inflation reading because of this price cap guarantee scheme that you've talked about. And Chris Giles in the FT had a nice piece where he showed that the annual increase for the gas and electricity components in inflation should fall from around 96% in the last reading to just 27% in the next one. Now, you know, 27% is still high, but it's a lot lower than 96%. So we should start to see immediately at least a 2% fall
0: in inflation in just a month, in the headline rate, that is. So the headline probably will come down, as you say... That doesn't help core, of course, which is what the central banks tend to look at. And the base effects are going to be big. You know, they were in the US and they came out of the spike sooner than us. And gasoline is now deflationary if you break down the US CPI components. So, you know, some components of CPI in the US certainly are now in deflation. That's not true of the UK for the major categories. But it will be eventually. And eventually these things will abate. But that's why they're kind of obsessed with the core inflation in the UK, because of this price-wage spiral, which I think is much more likely to kick off here. And certainly, if you look at things like the market expectations of inflation, so people always talk about central bank credibility. You know, Do people believe that the central bank can control inflation? And one way to measure that is to look at future inflation priced into the inflation swaps market. And the one country in currency which really stands out is the UK, where inflation over the next five years is expected to be around 4%. And at some points recently, it was at over 5 And it really stands out above the rest of the other central banks.
1: Yeah, so market participants expect UK inflation to be double the Bank of England's target. Whereas if you look at the US, expectations for the next five years are more
0: like 2.5%. So pretty well anchored. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell always stresses the fact that they are credible because he always quotes the swap market and says, look, you know, people don't expect inflation to get out of control because they believe us. They believe we can control it. So a lot of this is based on a kind of psychological game where the central bank has to be credible. And that way, people don't anchor their expectations higher for inflation.
1: Yeah, I guess it's a psychological game, but also it's a structural issue, right? It's a real issue in the UK where, like you say, we're importing a lot of energy we're struggling to import people and the labour pool is super tight. And there's just a question of what is the structure of our economy going forward? What are we going to sell the rest of the world? And this is getting taken out on the pound every so often, which obviously, if the pound weakens, all your imports go up in price.
0: Yeah, pass-through inflation's been a problem for the UK now. So if the Bank of England is slightly more aggressive than the other central banks, then, you know, at least that would strengthen sterling and reduce the pass-through effect. But the problem is that so much of UK wealth depends on mortgages and property and house prices. And if that wealth is suddenly reduced by soaring mortgage funding costs, then, you know, that's not going to be comfortable for the Bank of England either. Do you want high inflation or do you want to
1: pop the housing bubble? (laughs) Good choice to have, isn't it?
0: But I think this is a really important social question. You know, do you want to help the most wealthy in your society or the people who are worse off? Because inflation really hurts the people who are poorest. Whereas the more wealthy can probably ride out these difficult periods much more easily. Whereas if you're just struggling to feed your family, you know, all of this inflation stuff isn't just a, a kind of academic thing. It's really, you know, putting food on the table, food of reasonable quality at least. I guess it takes us on to
1: the point that what the market is focused on at the moment is have interest rates peaked, or are we just about to see the peak? I know we've got a Federal Reserve rate decision in the US, I think on Wednesday this week and the ECB later in the week, and then I think the Bank of England next week. So it's all coming. What do we reckon? There's kind of a split in whether rates are going to keep going up now.
0: But the generally accepted wisdom now is that, yeah, there's going to be a rapid fall due to the base effects, due to energy. To some extent, we've already seen that for the US. And then there's going to be the sticky core, which is going to be difficult to get rid of. But certainly for the Bank of England, they are still saying that they expect inflation to fall rapidly towards the end of this year. But I bought an inflation-linked bond, particularly for this reason, because I don't believe that they're right. I think it's going to stay sticky for longer in the UK. So, you know, I'm kind of betting against the Bank of England and Andrew Bailey. You've been wanting to do that for
1: years. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of the interest rate question, there was a big move in yields after the last CPI figures came out. So before it turned out the inflation stayed in double digits, the market expected rates would peak at maybe 4.25% or 4.5%. But then in the aftermath, it spiked and they expected it to hit
0: 5% this year. It doesn't often move that quickly. Yeah, I think people are coming round to the conclusion that inflation's not a battle that's been won. And certainly if you go back to the 1970s, it came in three waves, you know, one initial wave due to the energy crisis and then there was another wave due to sterling devaluing and then there was a third wave due to another energy crisis that was in 79. But at the next meeting, do you expect the Bank of England to hike again? I think they will. No, I think this is definitely not the end of the cycle for the UK. And I think, you know, with core inflation running so hot, and even headline inflation running so hot, it's going to be very difficult not to make a case for raising rates.
1: Because there was a split, wasn't there, at the last meeting? Yeah. It wasn't a unanimous let's raise rates decision.
0: Because people always talk about lag, because if you do raise bank rate, it's going to have a while before it affects the economy and tightens conditions. And of course, in the US, you've got the banking crisis, which Jerome Powell says has acted as if it was a rate hike. In the UK, we haven't had that. Banks are probably tightening up on lending, but it's just so much harder to get the stats on that in the UK. Which is not good when you're trying to forecast a lag effect. (laughs) It'd be great if the Bank of England did publish this stuff. I think it does, actually. I think you can find it. It's just so much harder to dig it out. Would you be worried if the Bank
1: of England didn't hike at the next meeting?
0: I would, yeah. You know, it's very clear that they're not credible. Your inflation-linked bond might do well, though. Well, yeah, maybe I'm talking my own book here, but I think that it's certainly the case that the investment population doesn't really believe that the Bank of England can keep inflation at a reasonable level. They're dead in the water, if that's the case. Well, you know, I think they've got their work cut out for them.
1: To be fair to the Bank of England, they're in a really tough position here, aren't they? Like We've talked about the challenges the UK has, and they can't influence those challenges. They just have to sort of sail the ship on the stormy seas. Which
0: they do well. You know, I think they do their best. And I think the people who work at the bank work really hard to ensure that UK PLC does okay. But you have to deal with the cards that they're dealt by politicians. And of course, those have been particularly difficult recently with the mini budget and, you know, all the other political mistakes which have been made recently. I mean, whatever you think of Brexit,
1: we have spent the last eight years, is it? When was the referendum? 2016? Just talking about Brexit all the time rather than talking about the challenges that actually face our country. Now, you could say, okay, maybe Brexit was a challenge that was worth taking on, blah, blah, blah. But it seems to me that we've just had a lot of wasted time.
0: Yeah, I mean, this much vaunted sovereignty question, you know, if you keep more power... Well, that's great as long as the powers use wisely. And I think that's not been the case. You know, we've got potentially more sovereignty, but it's been squandered, which everyone can now see. And I think, you know, that's not going to wear well with the investment community globally. We haven't seen big inflows to the UK. Oh no. The opposite. And we've seen our equity markets essentially shrinking relative to the rest of the world. And, you know, less issuance of stocks here, people preferring to list in the US. So it is difficult to stop these downward spirals, which kind of breaks my heart. I hate to see it.
1: You have to be a contrarian to invest in the UK right now. But then there are a lot of contrarians, right? So maybe the time is now.
0: Yeah, I still think that the UK has a huge amount to offer. You know, it's a great country. I love living here. You know, I love the culture and everything. Yeah, it's all right for you
1: and your secret eggs. Not everyone's (laughs) in that position. (laughs) That's right. I mean, we've talked a lot about the UK, but... You know, as you say, it's a small part of global markets and the global economy. The big beast here is the US. And everyone would like to know, is the US done hiking rates? Is there one more to come? Are they going to get an inflation surprise and have to keep hiking? Are they going to start cutting? That's what the market expects.
0: Yeah, I think the cuts which are priced in are just kind of crazy. I think it's just not going to happen while core is still so high. If you look at what's priced in right now, it's cut after cut after cut next year. And that's just very unlikely. Just looking at the futures market right now for Fed funds, this is for the policy rate in the United States. The first cut's going to come in November of this year, and then there'll be another one in December. And then it's just a cut for every meeting until July of 2024, which I just think is kind of crazy. I don't think that's going to happen.
1: And these cuts that are priced in by the futures market,
0: are they reasonably accurate as
1: predictors, like historically, or is it just best ignored?
0: No, it's been a terrible predictor. If you actually do the hairy charts, that's what they call them, which I think is a great name. What they always assume is that we're going to get less aggressive hiking when you're in a hiking cycle and tighter policy when it's very easy. So they just expect mean reversion.
1: I mean, you expect mean reversion. That's your whole
0: shtick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a kind of base case, you know, for some things are mean reverting, things like valuation. So I think it's not unreasonable for models to do that. So will they hike then at the next meeting? Is there one more to go? I think it's one more. One more and then we're pretty much done for this cycle because we are starting to see inflation abate in the United States. It's very marked in their data.
1: And then they're going to just hold rates there is what they're saying. The market doesn't believe them, but they say they're just going to keep rates flat until they see it come down close to 2%.
0: The justification now is that we've got the banking crisis in America. So J.P. Morgan, as we record this, has just said they're going to acquire First Republic. Of course, they made a big deposit into the bank, which was uninsured. So, so now they've bought the bank. They're buying their own money back. That's oh, <laughs> right. But that tightening of the banking system due to the kind of fear and tighter lending conditions, it's going to take a while for that to feed through into credit conditions in the United States. So the Fed's justification now for waiting and seeing is that tightening of lending conditions. The
1: question is, can the banking system, and I guess the economy, can it cope with the level of rates being held at this level for a year or two, right?
0: It has before. I think it just finds ways to adapt to it. It may become less profitable. And I think that's the worry in many people's minds now. And the broad question here, wider than the banking system,
1: is are we going to get a recession? Are we going to get inflation down while avoiding a fall in economic activity?
0: So all of the models are currently pointing to a recession in the United States with a very high probability.
1: I saw that there was a model from the New York Fed which showed that the probability of a recession is at the highest level since 1982. Which, you know, we've had recessions since 1982, so it's going to be a hell of a false positive, isn't it, if it doesn't happen?
0: Yeah, it has been a fairly consistent indicator because the Fed usually causes a recession. That's usually the way it works. Rates hike, followed by recession, because that's kind of what they're aiming for, certainly a cooling of the economy. So really it's a question of whether we get a shallow recession, a brief recession, or whether we get something which is a bit deeper.
1: I mean, the bond market is doing kind of weird things, isn't it, at the moment? The stock market's kind of just a bit blasé, drifting upwards, whereas the bond market's freaking out.
0: The thing is, you've got this combined with a debt ceiling debate in the United States, where people are really worried about the X state, which is when the money's going to run out for the Treasury. You know, you combine that with a shortage of short-term government debt, because the US government very sensibly has decided to cut back on issuance of short-term debt. It's extended the maturity of its debt. So it could lock in those low rates for longer. So there's just a shortage of safe stuff to buy exactly at the time when everybody is piling into money market funds. So that's caused real huge fluctuations at the short end of the curve because money market funds have to buy this stuff. You know, if they get inflows, they've got to buy it because, you know, it's safe. (laughs) But there's a shortage of safe right now.
1: Well, can't they just park it in reverse repo
0: at the Fed? Well, that's what they're doing. And, you know, that's what's pushed reverse repo up above $2 trillion. And money market funds are now completely dominated by reverse repo, if you look at some of the big US money market funds.
1: So are you concerned in some way about money market funds? Because you always talk about them as these super safe instruments.
0: Well, yeah, I think this combination of factors is pretty toxic. Debt ceiling, a huge amount of people piling into money market funds When there are these red hot flows into an asset class, you always think, well, when this reverses, it's going to get ugly. There are going to be forced sales, maybe gating, you know, you just think, oh, not again. And what would cause the like reversal and the massive flow out of money market funds? Well, this is the debt ceiling. You know, I think that could be the catalyst.
1: Yeah, but let's assume that's not going to happen. What else could cause it? A soft landing, everyone piling back into risk assets?
0: Yeah, I think that could be one of the triggers. And I think, you know, if people suddenly surge back into equity markets, it can happen very quickly, in which case they'll be dumping their money market funds, pouring their money into the equity market. And that could be a problem, you know, selling that stuff, which is fairly illiquid. But the fortunate thing is that because it's safe stuff, if you push up the yield on safe stuff, it makes it more attractive. Whereas if it's something like cryptocurrency or stocks, if you sell those, it pushes down the price and you get a kind of positive feedback mechanism. With these safe stuff, you get a negative feedback mechanism, which tends to stabilise things. So that should mitigate the problems. But I still think there could be a massive outflow problem at some point.
1: Well, you'd think so, right? Because money market funds are always advertised as, you know, somewhere to park your cash in the short term. So it'd be weird if they had these huge balances for years and years on
0: end. In a way, it's toxic, you know, if you do have that, because the capital could be better used elsewhere... Because it's kind of unproductive capital if you're just parking it with banks, for example. But
1: presumably this is one of the mechanisms that transmits monetary policy into the economy. It slows the economy because people are taking money out of risk and putting it into safe stuff, which isn't going to grow the economy.
0: Yeah, definitely. This is one of the transmission mechanisms. You favour savers rather than borrowers, and that tends to cool things down. So you could say the banking crisis is also going to help the Fed. You know, Jerome Powell said it, it's equivalent to rate hikes. So they don't have to make these rate hikes because the banking crisis is doing it for them. Whatever happens, Jerome Powell says, this helps us. This is doing (laughs) our job for us. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't say that about federal government spending plans.
1: No. I mean, let's take a step back here and just think, Okay, what could go wrong? We've said the expected way it plays out is inflation slowly falls to 2%. Rates start to come down over the next two or three years and we're back in business. What if that doesn't happen? What if we get a second spike in inflation? What could cause that?
0: Well, certainly energy's caused it in the past. So, that double spike that we got in the UK in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a huge energy spike in 73 and then another one in 79. So, you know, we could get that again. And these things do tend to come in clusters, which is quite odd. But nobody's going to want to hear that. You know, we're all kind of sick of the rising energy prices. But let's say there's a really cold winter. And Putin blows up various pipelines that supply gas. You know, I mean, it wouldn't take much. The infrastructure is very shaky and vulnerable, I think. So, you know, we'll be back where we were. And unless you've got large reserves of energy, then what are you going to do? You know, you're not going to have energy through a cold winter. Prices will have to go up a lot.
1: The other thing that concerns me slightly is this discussion of deglobalization or reshoring, whatever you want to call it, where a big driver of the relative low inflation we've had over the last 30 years has been using the sort of global labour pool to make stuff more cheaply. And if that goes into reverse, then you do have an inflationary pressure.
0: Definitely. You know, things like reshoring are very inflationary. If you're going to have to pay more for wages, a lot of the cost of goods and services that we consume depend on wages. So if you look at the price of a Big Mac, say, in the UK, you know, where does the cost come from? Well, it's the labour, which makes up a large proportion of the cost. It's not the price of the eggs, the apple. Nah, it's McDonald's franchising fees. <laughs> 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 but the
1: thing is, Roman, you can't really outsource your McDonald's to supply from China, right? You need someone there flipping your burgers in the UK. I mean, maybe we'll see a battle between a reshoring pressure and deglobalization on one hand, which is inflationary, and AI boosting productivity and meaning we need less workers on the other hand being deflationary, and we'll see which wins.
0: Yeah, I think if robotics took off, you know, that would be deflationary because a lot of the mundane tasks could be automated. I mean, I guess the other inflationary pressure that's
1: coming is the energy transition to wean us off fossil fuels, which is going to require a lot of capital spending, presumably a lower investment in oil and gas, and therefore higher prices in that in the meantime. And energy is an input cost to
0: everything. So right now, what percentage of the energy that's being used by our houses do you think is made up by renewables? In the UK? Yeah, like literally over the past hour. <laughs> over the past hour? I don't know. <laughs> I'm looking out the window, it's not very windy, so I'm going to say 20%. Yeah, so wind is making up about 19% of our power Boom! usage right now. Yeah, so <laughs> you know, renewables are making up a third today. And some days when it's windy, it's a very large proportion of our energy supply, which is renewable. So I think people underestimate how quickly renewables have kind of filled the gap. And there hasn't been a huge amount of investment, but what investment there has been has been very effective. So you're not worried then about the
1: energy transition leading to medium term inflation?
0: Well, I think there are many industries which are worried about it because for them it's an existential threat. So spreading fear, uncertainty and doubt about it is certainly in their interests. But I think in terms of the actual costs of it, now we're looking at a situation where some of the energy solutions which are being provided are cheaper. So if you go for renewable wind, for example, it's now very competitive. It didn't used to be, but it is now. And solar. It's almost a no-brainer if you have a car, an electric car, having solar panels on your house and the ability to charge it using that makes absolute sense. And the break even's much sooner than it used to be. Yeah, I don't think it's the question that a wind farm is going to be
1: more expensive than running an oil rig. It's the fact that we're still going to need oil for a long time, regardless of how fast we move. And that oil is going to become more expensive and that
0: gas is going to become more expensive in the meantime. But in a sense, this is important because previously we talked about how energy is priced in the UK. It's still the case that you price energy based on the most expensive source, which is gas. Even if renewables are cheaper, then there's no way you can have disinflation from energy if you price energy that way. Even if you've got really cheap renewable sources, you're still going to be charging based on something which is running out. So at a certain point, that's got to change. There's no question. Yeah, we probably will need to overhaul the whole market structure of
1: energy. But then there's a lot of um, lobbying power to fight. And there's a lot of like genuine concerns about market dynamics and incentives there.
0: And I think also, if you're not so well off, it's very difficult to get renewable energy. To buy an electric car, for example, is more expensive. There'll be a bigger secondhand market, of course, eventually. But if you want to build solar panels on your roof, it's very expensive to do that. And very little of the new builds in terms of housing have things like heat pumps and solar power. Until that happens, I think it's going to be the case that you're going to have two groups of people in the UK one which can afford this cheaper renewable energy, and a large proportion of the population which can't. So I think in some ways, you know, there will be a disinflationary trend due to renewables, but we're going to have to get through this transition period until that really kicks in. Now, I mentioned that I actually bought an inflation-linked bond. Well, I actually shared the whole experience, including calling my broker in order to buy it. And that's an explainer which is available as part of our community. So if you do want to join our community and get access to all of the goodies, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, will high prices be with us
1: forever? So this is a question that comes from one of our listeners, John. He says, The media talk about how a fall in inflation is positive for consumers, almost implying that costs are going to come down. But surely the increased prices from our 10% inflation spike are now baked in. Prices won't fall, but merely continue to increase at a slower rate. Surely we need to see deflation for prices to fall, which, as I understand it, is frowned upon by economists. Am I missing something? I think that's a great question. It is a good question. Is he missing anything or has John just nailed
0: it? He's nailed it, which is that, you know, prices don't usually go through a period of falling after one of these inflation spikes. That's certainly not been the case historically. It's been very unusual to get deflation in the UK as a whole. And what I mean by that as a whole is for all of the components en masse to fall together. And if that does happen, it's usually due to some economic catastrophe. So usually the catastrophic economic environment in which that does happen is one where nothing is good, right? So yeah. <laughs> that's not what you want.
1: I mean the Great Depression in America was where you saw long lasting deflation and that was not a good time.
0: <laughs> right. But because what it means is falling demand. I mean, people forget that inflation, a small amount of inflation, is probably a good thing because it stops people from hoarding capital. Capital's instead put back into the system and used for productive you know, positive things on the whole.
1: Yeah, because you need to try and keep up with inflation. So you've got to put your money into kind of a risky asset of some kind, maybe a stock, and give your money to a company who's going to go and make stuff that we want to buy. It's like this yeah. big circle of life. I'm going to start singing an Elton John song or something. <laughs> oh, here. no, please don't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but deflation, yeah, generally is seen as a negative thing, and it is a negative thing. But what I would expect is that certain components of inflation will go into reverse. And we have seen that. Energy is falling, isn't it, in price? Certainly in America. So gasoline prices went into reverse some time ago, and that's been dragging the headline number down. Core, of course, doesn't include it, so it wasn't affected. So I think certain things will fall, but expecting wages to fall, well, no, that's not going to happen. And, you know, people just wouldn't put up with that, quite rightly. You mean nominal wages? Nominal wages, yeah.
1: We up with falling real wages for a long time now. <laughs>
0: That's right. Because most people don't realise it's falling. When inflation's running at what, two, three percent, you don't feel it so much as when inflation's 10 percent. You don't even see it probably. But yeah, he's right. I think for the index as a whole, it's not going to come down and we're just going to have to bake in higher prices.
1: And you kind of have to catch up over the long term by strong GDP growth feeding yeah. through into strong real wage growth. So we get back to the purchasing power we had before the inflation spike.
0: And this is kind of what I'm hoping, because productivity has been one of the key problems that the UK economy's got, which is that, you know, we don't produce more stuff every hour. At least that trend of growth in productivity per hour has kind of halted for the UK after the global financial crisis. Yeah, it's the kind of the case across the
1: developed world, but particularly bad in the UK. And there's all sorts of suggested reasons for it. Like maybe we're over-reliant on London, house prices are expensive in London, Young people can't move to London so easily. That's one kind of explanation. One is just a massive lack of investment in the UK economy from businesses and potentially government. And then, yeah, another one is kind of the market structure in UK capital markets favours stripping money out of companies through dividends rather than investing for growth.
0: And demographics, you know, we've got an older population. That's not just true for the UK. It's true across much of the developed and now emerging world. But if you talk about deflation, there are some product categories maybe
1: that have had persistent deflation in a way i'm thinking of information technology right so a computer the cost of equivalent amount of processing power now is like tiny compared to where it was decades ago right moore's law has just like obliterated the cost of it yeah
0: i mean you couldn't buy a computer they were just far too expensive you need a separate house to fit it in (laughs) yeah (laughs) i <laughs> still remember we used to have this computer which was used in the biophysics department at imperial and it sounded like a lorry you'd switch it on and it would just go it really rattle your teeth you needed one of those air sprays to clean out the fence <laughs> <laughs> and now probably you could get the same amount of computing power on your mobile phone
1: but it's interesting though isn't it it's had that phenomenon where we can all have multiple computers that we carry around with us, you know, tablets, phones, watches, computers, obviously actual computers. So we all have all these computers relatively cheaply, but that hasn't caused any economic problems. So why is deflation
0: as a whole a problem? I guess deflation is a problem when it's a shock, you know, when the entire suite of prices falls together when you've just got one component, which is falling gradually over time, like TVs or toys or computer software or wireless telephone services, all of those have been falling steadily in the US, for example, for the last 25 years. You know, while things like hospital services have just been going through the roof, college tuition fees as well, or college textbooks, or childcare and nursery school costs, you know, all of that stuff's been surging. But I think that's when deflation is particularly bad. It's when it's a shock and everything moves down together. Because it's said that deflation is a problem because you can just wait and buy
1: the same thing in a year's time for much cheaper and just keep your cash. Your cash, just hoarding it, is generating a return, a real return by just holding cash, right? So it's bad for that reason. But people don't wait to buy computers and phones because they're going to be better next year. They buy a new phone every
0: year. But part of that, I think, was the very low interest rates, which meant that you could effectively just buy it on a lease, which is what you've got with these mobile phone contracts. So maybe, you know, with higher interest rates, people will change their behaviour.
1: Yeah, I don't really know the answer to the question I'm asking, which is always a silly thing to do. (laughs) It's just like, maybe it doesn't always play out that deflation suppresses demand.
0: Oh, interesting question. Certainly if it's something that people really like and really love, well, you'll carry on buying it, even if it's going to be cheaper next year, like a mobile phone. People are really attached to their phones, aren't they? Yeah,
1: I think that's what it is. If you need to buy it, then you quite like deflation in that component.
0: Or if it's fashion. You know, fashion is one example where people are willing to churn, even though you probably don't need to buy new clothes. You know, now I'm wearing my fat face gear, Michael. You can tell.
1: I can see it today. Roman looks like a whole new man on the stream I'm watching. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you'd waited. I wish I'd (laughs) waited. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns do send us your questions no matter how dumb at the email address
0: mhr at pensioncraft.com and do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options many happy returns is a pension craft production co-hosted and executive produced by
1: Romin nakiza and michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors
0: are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.